ready to get going here. I want to pray and pray for today's service. Welcome to church as we have another day to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this Easter that we come and gather rejoicing for the great work of redemption that you did and for the hope of the resurrection from the dead. We know that Jesus Christ was raised as the first fruits, so that we also shall be raised, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere. Lord, we do pray for the scattered flock around the world, some who have no fellowship, some that just have a small home fellowship, and but they gather and they listen, and we extend our our prayers and our love to these people. May they know how much you care for them, Lord. And we ask you for wisdom and understanding from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay. Two Corinthians. Two Corinthians chapter 6, and we are on verse 11. And we see here in verse 11 a very... Uh, affectionate and personal uh, word from Paul to the Corinthian church. And in spite of all the trouble they made for him, he loved them very, very much. And so this is an address of a, a tender appeal. He says this in verse 11, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide, you are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. So there, there's this continual in the background of, of what we're reading in 2 Corinthians. There's always the issues and the conflicts and the lack of reciprocity as far as Paul giving to them, Paul loving them, Paul caring for them, and their response not being similar. In fact, they were so quick to listen to Paul's critics who would come and say that he wasn't spiritual or that he wasn't eloquent or point out whatever deficiencies, some of which he said was true, but they weren't important. But one thing he did not want them to do is to reject his gospel. Because if they reject Paul and consequently reject his message, they were rejecting the one thing that God had given them whereby they may be saved. So he says here in verse 11, our mouth has spoken freely. He has frankly, what this means is he's frankly spoken his mind. He told them straight up front what the issues were, where he was at, what their problems were, and what was important to him. He, he told them what they needed to hear, and he told them that without equivocation and without any, how would you say it? Remember earlier he said that the message that he preached was not adulterated. He preached the Word of God clearly, frankly, forthrightly for whatever, what it says. And I think that's the obligation of every preacher of the gospel. 
we, we have no other choice. We have no other choice than to explain the Scriptures truthfully for what they actually say. And sometimes that doesn't make us popular. In fact, sometimes that even is offensive to Christians. It's kind of strange, but that happens more often than you can imagine where the Scripture offends Christians. I just had a couple of emails recently to that end. Three or four, actually. And what offends them is the doctrine of election. And so I get these nasty emails saying that I'm really an evil pastor if I believe in the doctrine of election. And so, or somebody bought my book and wrote and then emailed me and said, I just wanted to hear about what's wrong with Rick Warren. I didn't want to hear about election or, or something like that. And I don't remember even teaching that. I, I was just, you know, teaching the doctrines of salvation. So I, I emailed somebody the other day and he, who was saying the same, sort of like, this is very troubling to me. And so I thought about something. Why don't we just, number one, I have an obligation before God to teach what the Bible says, Amen. not what's popular, nor not even what's popular with Christians. And I cannot purposely twist any scripture in order to make myself popular in the American evangelical world. Now, the other thing we should think about is why certain doctrines are in the Bible. Okay? And so, when Paul forthrightly spoke to the Corinthians, he did so because they needed to know the truth. And so, just the other day, I sent this email out, and I quoted like the first ten verses out of Ephesians 1, and then a big section out of Romans 8, both of which teach the doctrine of election. And so I said, just look at this in context. Why did Paul say what he said? And the obvious answer, remember that's authorial intent. Our, our hermeneutic is authorial intent determines meaning. Right? The Spirit-inspired authors of Scripture determine the meaning of what they wrote. So, why did Paul write to the Ephesians that they'd been chosen and predestined? <laughs> Cheryl, <laughs> God bless you, dear sister, because <laughs> it is true. Well, I guess that's a, another thing, but uh, Keith, uh, who, who's, who's the, oh, you got the mic in your pocket, all right. <laughs> Dangerous place for the mic in Keith's pocket. Okay, Keith. <laughs> Robert gave it to me. No, I, I think because it was giving them assurance that everything that what they were in God wasn't dependent upon them, and because God was faithful, they could have confidence in what had happened. And I think that's the real rub between why, or why Christians get upset with that understanding, because somewhere in us, we like to think that we did something. And to have that taken away from us, because only God did it, and we have no right to glory in our decision, or what we think is our decision, is offensive to us, because we want to have something. And when we don't have anything and it's all God, yeah. that's very difficult to our pride and very difficult to our individuality or, or, or uh, independence. It doesn't sit right with how we think God should do things. Now, secondly, think about this. The Ephesians, one of the issues in Ephesus was these principalities and powers. The stoichia, like in Colossae. And they're both, both these churches are in Asia Minor. And, the, and their, their uh, pagan belief system was that 
their fate was in the hands of the stoichia. Right? That there were forces in the universe. Now, and Paul doesn't deny the existence of these things. Alright? So these evil forces were influencing them so they'd have bad fate. And, and then whatever bad happened was probably because of one of these things. So then they were tempted to do magic in order to get rid of their bad fate. Now, what Paul was saying in Ephesus to the Ephesians was that they are seated with Christ in the heavenly places above principalities and powers. So they weren't under the powers, they were above the powers. So therefore, they didn't have to fear. And the fact that they were predestined unto glory was to comfort them that everything wasn't going to go bad, that they were in Christ, that they were secure, that God had done it, as Keith said, God did it all, and therefore is a comfort to the Christians. Now, you can clearly see that in Romans 8, where it says, who shall make a charge against God's elect? And then it gives a whole litany of all the possible things that could separate us from the love of God, and then the conclusion is nothing could. So this person had emailed me that was concerned about this. I said, so just accept the comfort the Lord's trying to give you. But what people want to do is they want to look at the converse and say, well, then maybe somebody over here cannot be saved. They look at the opposite side of it, which isn't the authorial intent. The intent of Paul teaching election is not to say some people cannot be saved. Paul didn't ever, I don't remember, if I read through Acts, I've read the New Testament dozens of times, do you ever remember Paul preaching anywhere where he says, well, you might not be the elect, so there's no hope for you? No! I've never, I, where, where did you see that? Who, somebody preached that, that would be terrible. He said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So we're trying to, oh, no, then they say, well, logically, logically, that has to be the way it is. Except the word. Paul said, my heart is spoken freely. I must freely from the heart teach you what it says. And that's my obligation. And I, and I'm going to, and know I'm going to have to stand before God. And so I'm just telling you what it says. It says to those who are saved that you've been predestined by God before the foundation of the world and, and so on. And it says to the lost, repent and believe the gospel. Call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. And that's all we can know. Keith. I was just saying, if we don't believe in the comfort that God has given us and the doctrines, then we're tempted to go to something else and reach out to the magic or reach out to uh, some way that we can manipulate the spiritual universe to keep ourselves. Because we end up either keeping ourselves or God keeps us. And I remember in the charismatic movement using the, the blood of Jesus like a like a talisman saying the blood of Jesus on that and the blood of Jesus on that and blood of Jesus on that too so that I could you know so the bad things wouldn't get me and when you believe that God is keeping me and he's held me he's always held me and it's because of him it's very freeing because then the bad things that do happen are filtered through the hands of a loving God and I don't have to yeah. worry what is what is the actual bad thing that the blood of Jesus keeps you from sin Stand in the wrath of God against it. <laughs> exactly. All right. So Paul uh, wasn't telling the Corinthians what they wanted to hear. He was telling them what they needed to hear. All right. And ultimately what we need to hear will be beneficial to us. Now, I don't believe there's anything in the Bible that God just hasn't designed to be beneficial 
to the Christian. And it will have its result. By the way, we could, I thought we saw a very vivid example of that. Dick, you called me and mentioned that. Friday night, for those of you who were here, what a blessing to hear seven of the Lord's dear saints all share the gospel boldly, clearly, and forthrightly. And that's what happens. That's just what God does when we set ourselves under the means of grace. He, he makes us equipped for the ministry. Everyone, not just the pastor. Okay, so his mouth is spoken freely. This is the perfect tense, and the Greek means that he spoke his mind, and he continues to do so, and it continues to have effect. When he says, O Corinthians, there's a warm personal dress. Notice he uses the word you, verse 11, you, O Corinthians, you, verse 12, are not restrained, but you are restrained in your affections. And so this is a very straightforward, warm, personal address to this church. And then he says, our heart is opened wide, again using the perfect tense, by which he loved them. His heart is the means by which he loved them, and he cares about their well-being, and he appeals to the relationship that they have and have had with the Apostle Paul. Robert, could you look up 2 Corinthians 2.4 and then Keith, Philippians 1.8? 2 Corinthians 2.4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Amen. Paul loved them, and so he wrote to them in such a frank manner. Uh, Philippians 1.8 That's what I wrote down. Hopefully that's appropriate. This Burnett says this, It is as if Paul stands blocking the pathway to perdition. This, this is uh, what Burnett said about what Paul's saying to the uh, Corinthians. It's as if Paul stands blocking the pathway to perdition that they appear willfully determined to tread. <laughs> Okay, they want, they want to go down the road to hell, but Paul stands in the way. <laughs> you ever, well, it's sort of like raising children. Anybody ever raised children and feel like you're trying to block the path of perdition that they want to go down? Yeah, it happens a lot. To proceed further toward apostasy from Christ, they must brush him aside. So he's blocking the roadway to their apostate state. Keith. For God is my witness, how I long for you all, with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may be bound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So he's praying that they'd have knowledge and discernment, and he's expressing his affection for that particular church. Another quote from Garland says this, It is as if they, to say that the breach in their relationship was not caused by him, he may have disapproved of their conduct and sternly rebuked them so they would change, but such frank criticism does not mean that he abandoned his affection for them. There is plenty of room for them in Paul's heart. There's no restraint on Paul's affection, but he frankly accuses them of closing their hearts to him. It's a very heartbreaking thing when people that you love 
persist in turning away from the Lord and going the wrong way, and uh, so on. Yes, Cheryl. I was thinking of the story in Acts about Paul and Silas in the Philippian prison uh, when they were singing and praising the Lord. And at midnight, there's a great big earthquake, and the jail is opened up, and everybody's chains fall off. And the the jailer knows if anybody finds out that the the prisoners got away, they'll probably kill him. So he draws (laughs) his sword to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. And he, he falls down before Paul, and he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And I thought that was so cool. <laughs> You're right. That's wonderful. <laughs> that was a great, great episode in the book of Acts where this guy was going to kill himself because he figured the prisoners all get loose, he's going to die anyhow. And rather be flogged by the Romans, <laughs> he's going to kill himself, and then he's saved instead. The Lord rescues us from perdition. Next verse, verse 12 says, You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Restrained there in the Greek means to make narrow or to constrict. And so their they're affections... Now, the word affections is a really kind of a cool Greek word, splognon, and it means guts. And it's used metaphorically in the Greek New Testament to mean the inner parts, meaning affections. But it's literally innards, splogna. It sounds like that. Yeah, it sounds like an appropriate word for that, doesn't it? Anyhow, that's what Paul uses here. And... There's, again, they're in danger of rejecting Paul, which wouldn't be the end of the world. But what is bad is if they reject him, they may very well reject his gospel. And that's the danger. And if they don't listen to him, they're going to listen to the false teachers who are vying for their affections uh, all the time and are claiming superiority over Paul. So I've got one cross-reference. Alice, could you look at uh, 1 John 3.17? 1 John 3.17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Yeah, the closing the heart is the same idea. To, to close down and not be affectionate toward other Christians. Now let's go to verse 13. It says, Now in like exchange I speak as to children, open wide to us also. In other words, as a fair return or to show reciprocity, Paul loved them, Paul laid down his life for them, he cared about them, and he wanted them to respond accordingly rather than the way that many of them had responded to Paul. Now I have some verses here too, Troy, 1 Corinthians 4, 14 and 15, and Joanne, Galatians 4, 19, and Dick, 1 Thessalonians 2, 11. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were 
to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Okay, so he wanted them to show some respect for the fact that he's the one that brought them to gospel. Galatians 4.19 My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Yeah, again, speaking to Christians as children. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.11 Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Same idea. Now we're going to go to a new section here. And it changes so abruptly that some, uh, some scholars have tried to claim that this was stuck in there from somewhere else and didn't belong here. This, this paragraph starting in 2 Corinthians 6.14, I don't buy that because you can't just make a theory with no textual evidence. So it's just, there's no textual evidence. There's only this circumstantial because if you look at verses 14 through 1, and then, then look at verse 2, what they point out is, well, you could take verse 2 and put it right after verse 13 of chapter 6, and it would flow perfectly. And, and in the meantime, here comes this section of why is this here. But I'll give some explanation. Now, in like exchange, I speak to children, open wide to us. And if you jump to verse 2, he says, make room for us in your hearts. So they're saying, well, see, this other thing came in here, and they even speculated because it talks about separation so much that it actually came from the Qumran community. But uh, the Qumran uh, people were so isolated and what have you, they didn't influence much of anybody. And, and there's no evidence whatsoever that they had any influence on Paul. Paul was not an Essene. And, and the Pharisees uh, that was Paul's background really didn't look down on the, the Qumran people were considered eccentric and kind of wacky by just about everybody. And if you want to read an interesting thing in history, read uh, Josephus's description of the Qumran or the Essenes at the Qumran community. And they were really, really eccentric. So it's true that Paul interrupts his thought to go into this issue about separation, and then he goes back to the thought. But that's fine. Writers do these sort of things. And uh, let's just accept what it says. And there's no textual evidence that this came from anywhere but Paul. Now, we're going to have, from verses 14 through verse 1, a section on separation from sin and separation from certain things in the world. Now, it's important that we understand what is the issue Paul is addressing so that we can understand what we are to separate from and what Paul isn't saying. And, and so we'll probably discuss that the rest of this morning and then I want to talk about the issue again next week a little bit because it comes up because Christians have historically disagreed on uh, what separation, what is right and wrong about separation. So you've had in the history of the church extreme versions of separation as if in monasticism, where if you want to be a good Christian, you get so far away from the world that you don't even brush shoulders with anybody but fellow monks or nuns. And that would be sort of the Essene sort of thing. And then you have other versions of, of separatists. There's, there's what's called separatist fundamentalists. Um, and 
they're still out there. That's a, that's a, a split off of the evangelical movement from about 50 years ago that people that believed that they had to cloister themselves and create certain rules that would make Christians so eccentric that they couldn't interact with anybody else or nobody would want to interact with them. And there's degrees of that. You can go from, uh, say, extreme separatism would be the Amish, right? because they're so eccentric that people might go look at them, but they're not going to interact much with them because they're in some other world. Now, then there's the other extreme where the church is just the world itself, where you just have a worldly church that isn't obviously any different than the world around it. So we need to find out what is appropriate, what we need to do. Okay, Cheryl. If we're supposed to separate ourselves from the world and the evil in the world, and people go and people take it to such an extreme that they won't have anything to do with non-believers at all, then how does the gospel message get sent out the way Jesus commanded that it was supposed to be. Yeah, that's the obvious problem with the monastic movement or the desert fathers. They went out in the desert because they didn't even want to be around other Christians. Well, how, look at all the commands in the Bible about love one another, about being salt and light, about sharing the gospel. And so you're sitting out in the desert and you won't even have anything to do with another Christian or you're sitting on a pole like that one guy for 30 years. Well, you, Cheryl, you're right. It's obviously not Jesus' intent that we're, that we're totally isolated because who's going to share the gospel? And one other point to make is this, and then, then Keith has something to say. Um, I, I mentioned this before I, when I was preaching through some passage a few years ago. If separation in an extreme sense was Christ's intent for the church, it would have been very easy to cause that to happen because the laws that, it, that God gave the Jews through Moses actually worked to keep them separate. And they've worked to this very day. The Jews never intermingled with the other the, and lost their identity because of three, three primary reasons, circumcision, the food laws, and the Sabbath. And it created a, 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 an identity and a separation that actually worked, and it has worked to this very day, so that the Jews are still the Jews. If God intended that the church be separatist in the sense that the Jews were, all he would have had to do is leave the food laws and circumcision and Sabbath laws intact, and it would have kept the separation. Now, why didn't he do that? Why did Jesus declare all foods clean, according to Mark 7? Because the gospel was to go out into all of the world and not just remain in Jerusalem, not just remain cloistered with a few people that were so eccentric that nobody else would get along with them. Yes. I want to just, just follow up on that. We have a kitchen back here because this was a synagogue before we bought it. We had a kitchen back here that when we shared the kitchen, when we shared this building with the synagogue, we couldn't use that kitchen because we would make that kitchen unclean and we had to separate. So when we had meals, we had to have them catered from the outside in order to use the building because it was that much of a separation. Right. And I think that the key thing right now when we're studying this passage is to determine what Paul says is acceptable criteria to separate on 
Yes. And what isn't acceptable criteria to separate on. Exactly. Because if I set myself up as a lawgiver and say you must separate on this aspect or that aspect, and God hasn't said it, then I become a false prophet, and I'm actually just damaging or harming the church instead of bringing forth the gospel the way it's supposed to be. Right. So let me tell you right up front what Paul had in mind, and then I'll give you evidence for it. What Paul was talking about, and it's obvious from reading 1 Corinthians and then other things in 2 Corinthians, and this was his debate with them all along. It was the debate that was going on in 1 Corinthians, in a sorrowful letter that we don't have, and, and so on. And the debate was their claimed right to attend the pagan cult meals. All right? That was the issue in Corinth. They Not only were they participating in the idolatrous festivals, they were claiming the right to participate in the temple fornication that was associated with it. All right? And you can see that in... Let's go back to 1 Corinthians and see what the issues were. Uh, I'll just give you some instances of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians to show what it was that they were claiming the right to do and that Paul was demanding that they separate from. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'll start with verse 9. Then we can clearly see what some of the issues were in Corinth. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, stomachs for food, but God will do away with both of them. If the body is is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will raise us up through his power. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? So they were participating. Remember one of the things in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 that the church decided the Gentiles had to abstain from? Fornication. Now, we might think, well, that would be obvious. Everybody knows that's wrong. But that was part of their religious practices, yes. Yeah, the, the, the temple, the part of worship in the temple was to have temple prostitutes, male and female, and, and join yourself with the God that you're worshiping vicariously. Exactly. So it wasn't something that just happened on the side. We have, say, prostitution as a secular activity. For them, it was a religious activity that they engaged in for the sake of worshiping their, their gods or their supposed gods. Yes, Keith and I have a theory about why that happens. Do you want to tell it based on Genesis? Well, it's, it's an observation that spiritual adultery goes back a long ways. And in Genesis, when we see Genesis 6-3, when the daughters of men joined the sons of God and created these Nephilim, it was something that was tangible. At that time, you could have tangible spiritual idolatry. The fallen angels would come down and, and people lusted after that. Exactly. And it created these 
bad beings that God ended up destroying in the flood and elsewhere. Yes. As that, uh, I have a theory that that capacity to interact with the spirit world diminished. That's what God said in 6.3. Your days are going to be 120 years. And with Moses, he was the last one that interacted with God at the same tangible level. And when that stopped, you had a, a, a people or a group of people who could then interact with the spirit world to see them, and you then had a, their children that didn't have that ability, so they would create idols saying these idols represent... Yeah, the beings. idols represented actual spirit beings that, yeah, that they used to be able to see and tangibly interact with. So what was the role of the temple prostitutes? The temple prostitutes then were there vicariously too. So right. instead of copulating with spirits as they once upon a time had been able to, they had an idolatrous worship that was in the temple yeah. uh, of these pagan temples. And if you continue that same concept, then it came into the Jerusalem temple because it ended up being a temple uh, while they didn't, when the Jews came back from the uh, captivity, they were never tempted towards overt idolatry anymore. Idolatry became into the temple, and they had other priests, and they, would, they violated the temple laws themselves. So by the time Christ came, there was not a son of uh, Aaron on the, in the high priesthood. It was something that was sold. Yeah. And the same thing happens now in the Christian church, whereas we, if we depart from the faith and run after apostasies, and the things that Paul's even saying here, we're committing a spiritual uh, adultery, adultery yeah. at a spiritual level. What, what Paul's saying is even very, very much overt. They're leaving the Christian church and saying we have liberty to partake in these pagan festivals. And Paul was saying, no, it is not true. One of the reasons they didn't want to give it up was because it actually was involved this tangible, a tangible spirituality that was created through this... Uh, temple prostitution. So that was their way of being joined to their God. Now here's what Paul says. Now, now knowing that, what, now we can see what Paul's saying. 1 Corinthians 6, um, verse 16 again. Or do not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot becomes one body with her. For he says the two will be one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So Paul was contending against the Corinthian church for their claimed right to attend the pagan cultic uh, 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 services that included meals offered to idols and prostitution or, or, or fornication, and that they were being joined to a false spirituality. Now, this problem did not just exist in Corinth. If you turn with me to Revelation 2, we'll see that elsewhere in Asia Minor, no, no, Corinth is actually in the Greek peninsula, but um, in Asia Minor they had the same problem, and it actually crept into the church. Now we may think, what church could be so apostate to believe 
that this sort of thing is okay. But, yeah, exactly. We have homosexuality going on. In, in some churches are, are saying it's okay. We have these pedophiles that the church just will tolerate it and tolerate it, some churches. So we have some serious problems. Um, okay, 2.14, Revelation 2.14, this is in Pergamum. But I have a few things against you because you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things offered to idols, one, and to commit acts of immorality, two. The same two issues that were at the forefront in Corinth. Because this is how the pagans worshipped. And then in verse 20, when we're talking to the church at Thyatira, he says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. By the way, do you notice that in the Bible, tolerance isn't a big virtue? <laughs> They're rebuked for being tolerant. <laughs> All right. So I think, I think that this verse would apply to about every liberal church in America. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now, what was her message? She teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. The same issues that Paul was addressing in Corinth, we find in Thyatira and in Pergamum. And this was things being taught in churches. And this Jezebel was teaching that this was a good thing. There isn't anything wicked enough that somebody won't teach it as a doctrine. Dick, you had something that I... Actually, it was going back to Keith's thing. Yeah. For anybody who didn't quite follow all that, I've sat through about six hours of telephone conversations on the issue. He's passed it before some really bright people. Yes. Half of them said, my goodness, what are you talking about? Some of the best of them that have studied that field like it and are pursuing it. So it's a really good concept, but it's not easy to pick up. Yeah, we, we, Keith has been in conversation with some Hebrew scholars and... There's credibility to this whole idea. I mean, it, actually, it doesn't really matter what we're talking about right here. It's just a way of looking at it that yeah. I think makes it clear. But in any case, what we're talking about here, what's interesting is that the Corinthian church was willing to separate with Paul and say, no, you're not welcome here because of the gospel. But they would accept the people that were disobeying the direct commands of God regarding fornication mm-hmm. and idolatry. Mm-hmm. So the whole issue of tolerance, and the same thing that we're seeing in the church today, is that the gospel isn't tolerated, <laughs> but we tolerate homosexuals in the church, we tolerate pedophiles in church, we tolerate gross immorality in church, but the gospel itself will not be tolerated. And that's, it's, it, we're, we're all screwed up. The whole idea, this yeah. is the whole idea of separation, is what do we separate over? Do we separate over yeah. whether you have a tie on? I came from a college where if you had your, your uh, facial hair below the corners of your mouth and you didn't wear a tie, you starved to death. They wouldn't let you in the cafeteria. Yeah. I just talked to, uh, I talked to a, a, a wonderful young couple that comes to our church, and they told a story about that. They were looking for a church, and 
and they loved the gospel, loved the word of God, and they didn't know where to go to church. And they went to a church that's one of these separatist fundamentalist churches because they wanted to hear the gospel. And as soon as they walk in, they know they weren't supposed to be there, that they weren't, they weren't acceptable. Because every man had a white shirt that looked like a Mormon missionary, and every woman had the same style dress. And they walk in just ordinary. They go, we don't belong here. And they never came back again. Now, people shouldn't have to feel like they have to all look like clones to be a part of fellowship. Okay? And that's needless offense. It's needless separation. Um, because a white shirt isn't more holy than a blue one. At least I hope not. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, Keith. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> Dick, you're acceptable. You can go to that church. Um, getting too flamboyant here. <laughs> yeah, you guys with those peach. What color is that? <laughs> okay. Um, now, but this is this this immorality that is considered a spiritual act is not unique to Asia Minor or to Greece in the ancient world. When I was at this think tank, one of the speakers was Vishal Mangawati. And he described tantric Buddhism, which is based on sexuality. And he did so in such graphic terms that a lot of people just had to leave. They couldn't sit through his lecture. Um, And it, it was very, very revolting but he told us exactly what's practiced in India, and it's been practiced for hundreds of years. And the woman is made into a goddess in order to have a spiritual uh, immorality going on. And it's very awful. It's terrible just to even hear about it. So this has been a part of paganism all the way back to Genesis. All right? And in the... The Corinthian situation, this is so much part of how they thought. We may think that's revolting, it's awful, it's terrible. They just thought this is, how you, this is what religion's all about. And so Paul had to fight with them to get them to separate from the pagan cults that were operating in Corinth. Now, there's more evidence for that. If you look at, for example, 1 Corinthians 10, let me show you again as he keeps going back to the same issue. And I think what happened as we reconstruct the history between Paul and the Corinthian church is that he was somewhat successful. In other words, between 1 Corinthians, the sorrowful letter, another visit, he had actually persuaded most of them to, that he was right about this. But it, he, so he doesn't bring it up as much in 2 Corinthians, but he does here right now when he talks about separation. Now remember when I preached on the, the Passover and then went to 1 Corinthians 10 and preached on Paul's application of the Passover, that they were to separate from idolatry. And in other words, the Lord's Supper, you are receiving, uh, verse 16, is not the cup of blessing that we bless is sharing in the blood of Christ. It is not the bread we break is sharing in the body of Christ. Since, since there's one bread... We are the many are the one body, we partake of one bread. And then he talked about the nation of Israel. Then he says, verse 19, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that idols is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. 
And I don't want you to be sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Then he goes on and makes a, an explanation, verse 24 and 25. Well, let's just look at verse 25. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. But in verse 27, if anyone of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone should say to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for your own conscience. So Paul was not saying you can't have the meat, and he's not even saying you can't share a meal with unbelievers. But you can't share the meal in the context of the idolatrous activities. So you separate not from meat, you separate not even from unbelievers, but you separate from idolatry. And, and in particular, the meat offered to the idols and temple prostitution or fornication. That's what you separate from. And that is clear. Yes, uh, Troy and then Ryan. Yeah, I think this theory is quite plausible. Before you had mentioned it, I was thinking there's really nothing new under the sun uh, in this type of uh, idolatry and, and heresy. It just keeps getting recycled throughout the centuries. It just yeah. keeps coming back around. Yeah, absolutely. And... And while we've seen this in smaller cult-type situations where cult leaders convince followers that uh, being immoral with the cult leader was a spiritual act that would join somebody to God. I mean, that's happened in our... In fact, it happened with this guy out in Atlanta that was back in the paper. Yeah, Paul, yeah. Okay. Well, you just read regarding the food sacrifice to idols. Um, and, Bob, you can comment on this because I know you agree. The... Um the implications and applications that arise from this text are so telling. I mean, there's a, a specific historical situation that Paul was dealing with, but we have implications and applications that even though specifically we may not be dealing with this all the time, even though it may still be around, the implications and applications are all around us as far as separating and partaking with things in our culture. Yes, I know. And this is a very, very important. And this gives us... The binding, implications and applications are binding if they're valid because that's how the Scripture is applied. Okay? And so what we need to find out, I think that there's some cases that we could talk about. Uh, let's just be frank. Does this apply to Roman Catholicism? In other words, is the Mass uh, idolatrous enough and the practices of Rome, idolatrous enough that if somebody is saved, would they be required to separate from it? Should we take a vote? <laughs> no. We, okay, well, well it's, it's, that's what Ryan is talking about, something like that. And I think most people that are saved who have been in Roman Catholicism are offended to go to the Mass. Is that true from uh, Sam? How many dick? Is it offensive when, if you're even forced to go because of some sort of a wedding or something? Well, you're free? <laughs> All right. Last night I watched Moses on Channel 5, and it was very well done. But it was interesting how quickly after they had left Egypt that they were had all these foreign gods within the gold, the idols, and the clothing, and the food, and they were right into it. And I, I was really shocked. I thought, 
Oh, we wouldn't do that. that <laughs> We're not as bad as they are, are we? Well, that's what, but see, good point. That's a very good point, Lois. That's the exact point that Paul made in 1 Corinthians 10. He took the Passover and the fact that they were delivered and they went, they were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. And then right after that, they went into idolatry. And, and so the, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, don't do what our fathers did. Now, that shows you, though, how attractive this is. Okay, This type of idolatry is so enticing, and the pagans have a hard time staying away from it. And our culture is becoming neo-pagan. In fact, if there's any one thing that uh, describes the American culture inside and outside of the church today is neo-pagan. Right. Yeah, that's a good point, Cheryl. She said when people, when you're told no, that's when people want to do something. Um, neo-paganism, by the way, is an, a spiritual attachment to the creation. If you take people and give them no religion and turn them loose and let them do whatever comes natural, they will become pagan. And we were talking about that at that think tank. Paganism is the default. Do you know what a default is in computer language? It's what happens when you turn it on and you don't make any choices. Whatever it's set to, that's the default. Paganism is the default religion. And paganism is a spiritual attachment to the creation. It's worshiping the creation and it's interacting with the creation in some sort of a supposedly spiritual way. And rather than the the creator, God is transcendent. Yes. And what happens in paganism, because they don't have a clear revelation of what going on in the spiritual world, they come up with laws and, and traditions to influence what's happening. So you have the, the Druids that celebrate the, the Druidic feasts on, on the, at the winter solstice. Yes. You have all these things that happen to influence the spiritual world because if I do this or do that in their pagan minds, I'm going to have an influence. What we're talking about here is that we have Christian liberty, bringing it back to election, because God created everything, our Lord created everything, and we're seated with him. We have liberty, and we can just go through life, and we can eat what we eat. We can walk where we walk. We can sleep where we sleep and work where we work and marry whoever we'll marry, and that's okay. We have liberty in these. uh, We don't have to manipulate the spiritual world in a pagan way. To, to go through this. We have the commandments of God that establish what's right and what's wrong, and that's enough. Yes. Let me give you the simple version, and we have some more discussion. Uh, this, here's the simple version, because let me read the passage that we're going to start studying next week. I wanted to introduce by giving us, get us thinking along this line. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, and what fellowship has light and darkness. And so, giving it the context of the discussion that's been going on in Corinth with Paul and the Corinthians, I'm interpreting this in the following manner. Paul is calling for the church to separate from idolatry and idolatrous practices, and not to join with idolaters in their worship or their practice. But he's not even calling for us to separate from the idolater outside of his practice. Yeah, or because 
Remember I read First Corinthians 10? You can go eat the meat with the unbeliever. But if the unbeliever says, join me because this is offered to the idol, you can't do it. All right? So that's how Paul has defined this. But the Corinthians didn't like the restrictions. They wanted to have their idolatry and their immorality. And so Paul has to rebuke them. And later in 2 Corinthians, you can see that there are still some who hadn't repented. He says, when I come, I'm going to, he says, every fact is going to be, uh, every fact is going to be um, verified in the mouth of two or three witnesses, but I'm going to deal with the unrepentant ones. So some of them still wouldn't listen. Yes. The latest trend in the visible church being the emergent church is just a form of paganism. I was going to say that, Troy. Yeah, uh, very good point. If you look, yeah, no, I don't have to. No, uh, no, that's a good point. When I did the Rob Bell study and that video, thank you, uh, someone transcribed it for me. And when I got done with all this study on Rob Bell, my, my conclusion is he's a neo-pagan. Everything is spiritual. In other words, spirituality is infused in the creation. And you find holiness by sitting out on a cliff and watching the sun come up. That's just a panentheism. God is in everything. It's just neo-paganism. And that's what is being taught in churches, is neo-paganism, earth goddess religion. It's neo-paganism. So, yes, Brian. The Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, don't historians say that that was, a, besides God's uh, providence, that that was a direct result of breakdown of the family unit uh, 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 sexual immorality and uh, idolatry. So when you look at when, when countries got so seeped in this, it was basically the beginning of the end. And, and now you look at uh, you know, other countries and ourselves. Like our own, yeah. And, and, and here we are. Vishal, by the way, do you know who he is? Vishal Mangawadi? He's a very brilliant uh, Indian Christian. And he's, uh, he's been a project now called the Book of the Millennium. And it's about how the Bible's influenced Western civilization since the Reformation. And he was saying, when he was doing that lecture on tantric sexuality and pagan religion, he said that in his opinion, one of the great contributions to Western civilization that the Reformation in the Bible gave us was the, the preservation of the family. That Luther elevated the family. Even, in, even monasticism, in a way, was an attack against the family. Okay, and uh, and so by by elevating the family using biblical principles that will protect the family and the laws of the Ten Commandments or uh, laws against fornication, what have you. This was just in, in especially in the upper class in Rome. They felt like it's no big deal to have all these mistresses. So the wife's sacred relationship with her husband was was despoiled and it destroys society so uh vishal really really is a got some compelling material but he's so frank maybe that's from being indian that uh a lot of people were blushing <laughs> okay yeah well we're after 10 here we'll talk about this more next week and we'll expound the passages that paul talks about separation